This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies in theaters and connects them to cooler, maybe lesser-known movies from days of yore. And today we're going to weave a phantom thread through the career of one of our favorite actors and one who we may be saying goodbye to after his current film, and that is Daniel Day-Lewis. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax at the Chronicle Herald. My name is Karsten Knox, and I'm a film writer. I got a blog called Flaw in the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca. So stay tuned and listen for a look at the career of one of the most interesting actors working in movies today, Daniel Day-Lewis. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Daniel Day-Lewis is one of those actors who just shows up in films and draws your attention to him. He, he's a, uh, he's a, a real, um, you could say he's kind, I mean, he's a great leading man, but he has something else, something intangible that, uh, that uh, people are always talking about and are always sort of amazed by. Uh, the actor was born on the 29th of April in 1957. He's a British-Irish citizen. Uh, Shakespearean trained, attended the Royal Shakespeare Company, and uh, he's known to follow the method, which is interesting since that particular style of acting is much more popular among American actors, But and the Brits tend, especially British uh, stage actors, don't tend to go for that. So that's kind of a, an interesting twist given his, his background. Um, he, he's known to stay in character on sets. Uh, on the last of the Mohicans, he apparently never put down his musket, and he learned how to clean it and fire it and do all those <laughs> things. Um, he's actually been knighted, but I've never heard him go by Sir, Sir Dan. I've never heard anyone <laughs> no, say that no, about not. the guy. Um, I think... I might have first noticed him in The Bounty from 1984, where he plays a supporting role as first mate to Anthony Hopkins' Captain Bly. Uh, it's a great ensemble and actually a really fun film to look back at. Uh, it's um, it, he, he stars with a future leading man, Liam Neeson, and freshly minted star Mel Gibson as Fletcher Christian. I really like the film, partly for the scenery, partly for the drama, and partly for the amazing Vangelis score, which, like Blade Runner, is the film's really lifted by. Um, apparently, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis also starred briefly in Gandhi as a thug, but he did, <laughs> he did a lot of theater and television in, in his younger days. Um, in our last episode, we uh, stopped upon two of his films, Sunday Bloody Sunday from 1971, which he just has like a five-second cameo in as a 
that thug. <laughs> so, or, yes, or a 14-year-old vandal. A vandal, yes. Scraping cars. And uh, and then he was in My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985, where he's a blonde-haired punk. And I sort of feel like um, his role in, as a street youth there was so contemporary and so cutting. And then in the same year, he was in A Room with a View, the Merchant Ivory film. It's such a huge movie at that time, that year. I mean, it really helped launch Merchant Ivory from more of a, a obscure indie uh, filmmakers to, you know, the corset drama, uh, that, that whole thing that happened over about 10 years or so, was, they were very popular. Um, but the fact that both of those performances are so different, I think, helped solidify Daniel Day-Lewis in the eyes of casting agents and directors. Like, wow, this guy can really do different things. I mean, those characters couldn't be more different. Um, but uh, yeah, and that was kind of the launch of his career, which Apparently, if 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 the reports are to believe be believed, he will be done with, uh, and Phantom Thread will be his final film, working with Paul Thomas Anderson in this feature film that he has been nominated for an Academy Award once again. We'll find out in early March whether or not he gets it, but. Um I think that uh, Gary Oldman's yeah, probably my, the favorite this my, year. My money's on Churchill, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, but but I, I I do love Reynolds Woodcock as a character in Phantom Thread, and it's a, it's it's a great role to go out on. Yeah, the, that chameleon cred gets established pretty early with those those two first major films where people really sat up and took notice. I, I did see Gandhi years ago, and I you know I I think. It had been. It was after its initial release, and I think I was on the lookout for him in the film, and I'm sure I spotted him. But yeah, not not really a role to remember no, from that particular film. I remember that. Yeah, Gandhi uh, spent a little time in South Africa, and there were then he, he experienced racism there. Yes. And I remember a scene with like South African white South African sort of tough kids or something giving him trouble on the street, and I suspect that one of them was probably uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, I think his character actually has a name, according to Time TV. I don't really feel like going back. He's, he's called Colin. Okay. And, uh, he so was, maybe he has more of a role than I remember. Yes, and he was billed without a hyphen, apparently. So. Oh, yes, right. The, hy- <laughs> the hyphen came later. Yes, exactly, um, after My Beautiful Laundrette. Yeah. So, so what did you think of Phantom Thread? I really, I really liked it, and I, it, it's funny because I've been going back and reading some online criticism, not not really from critics so much, it's just on on Facebook film groups and that kind of thing, and, and a lot of people just um, just felt like they didn't get it, they didn't get what the attraction was between the main characters, or they didn't feel any real emotion coming out of this film. But I, I really got swept up in it. It's it's um, it's a great portrait of you know like a great artist. At work, in this case, in the fashion industry, designing beautiful gowns for the well-to-do and occasionally the regal, and um, and this uh, very odd obsessive relationship he develops with his uh, at first model and muse, and eventually uh, eventually his wife, and uh, it it really felt like a, a throwback to the work of Michael Powell, who was. Uh, and Emmerich Pressburger, in terms of just the look of the film, it had that beautiful. 50s UK Technicolor, which is a very specific color scheme that you don't really see in films from anywhere else. Uh, and it tried to capture that with these kind of, you know, not quite pastels, maybe a little more vivid than that. But, but um, you know, Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson definitely wanted to do like a 50s style hybrid, maybe of a, of a Michael Powell slash Douglas Sirk kind of romantic drama where, where there's a lot of uh, high emotion and, um, Obsessive personalities, I guess, and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 it certainly does that. Um, and uh, you know, I, I liked. Uh, I mean, Day Lewis. It's it's a less 
maybe a slightly less mannered performance than we'd seen in some of his better known films. Although there, there's certainly, Reynolds is certainly um, an odd duck, as it were, obviously a gifted man in, in his field. Although the scene where somebody suggests that maybe his work could be more chic is it definitely stands when he just flips out on the use of that word. Uh, I, I just found that. Well, I found it hilarious, actually, yeah, but, sure. in, but in a good way. I wasn't laughing at it. I, I just thought that, you know, a word that we just come to assume to mean as a positive thing could, you know, in the world of fashion, you know, could have been seen as being tacky or, um, uh, you know, false or, or just a, about um, trappings and not so much about texture and uh, soul and, and the actual, soul of the thing. And the yeah. soul, yeah, the soul of the creation. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, Vicky, I'm, I'm going to mangle this. Is it th- creeps? It's creeps? Creeps, I think. It is yeah. just creeps. Um, you know, whose accent I was trying to figure out <laughs> for most of the film. It's like, well, clearly she's not English. And, uh, and at some point I found out she was from Luxembourg. So. There you go. So yeah. I don't know if that carries over into her character or not, or if she's, that's just the way she speaks. I, I, I haven't, I don't think she's been in a whole lot of stuff, so it's kind of nice to see a fresh face and one that the camera seems to uh, get along quite well with. And, um, of course, Leslie Mainville as um, Woodcock's sister is the uh, the third part of that triangle, and, and she delivers an amazing performance that, that really kind of anchors the film down in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, just watching this spool out uh, uh, on the big screen was a, was a real treat for me. Yeah, it is something this this relationship and and uh Woodcock is one of those characters who uh, he's so driven by he his whole identity is tied up in what he does. And then he meets this younger, quite a bit younger woman and and is is you know besotten with her, but we see that he's kind of got this pattern of like finding uh women to be with and then when he is tired of them he just walks away, casts them off and, and, uh, ghosts and, them. Yes. Like a phantom. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah. I like that actually. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, yeah. And then his, his sister is, is his enabler. I mean, he, she is kind of, you know, manages, help manages his life and he's so set in his ways. He finds it, he's unable to compromise on anything. So no wonder, uh, you know, she becomes frustrated with the life that she's asked to live in his house. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, and it's, uh, you can see how frustrating she gets. And as an audience, you can read there's she has a lot of, she garners a lot of our sympathy. Um, but as, as a performers, I mean, they are so well matched and this is something that I have noticed in past films and I'm not sure if it's a criticism or what, but I feel like Day Lewis's magnetism as an actor, as a leading man, sometimes crushes the people around <laughs> yes. him. Like I feel like if I think back on his films, and especially the ones in the past twenty years or so, and he hasn't worked a lot, but when he has worked, he has taken really prominent roles. And uh, yeah, and and he is he does have that kind of presence on screen that you can't help but look at him to the detriment of some of the other actors. And maybe that's the method. Maybe that's just the way the directors use him. I'm not sure, but. Uh, it's not the case in Phantom Thread. Uh, his his scene partner, she is she is with him toe to toe, and uh, she she stays with him, and she demands our attention as well. So in some ways, I think it makes it lifts uh, Day Lewis's performance from in in scenes with her uh, in in ways that maybe in some of these other films, even though he was you know uh, Academy Award winning in things like Lincoln. Uh, 
there are moments where I just feel like he's operating on some other plane from everyone else around him. But I didn't feel that was the case in Phantom Thread. I felt like this is actually, this feels like a, almost like a two-hander. Like these two are really, really engaged with each other and you really feel the power struggle between them. Yeah, he, I mean, he does give a very, it's a very controlled performance. I mean, you can feel that kind of internal tension throughout the film. And, you know, she does, you know, there's action and reaction, but but she does a lot of very surprising stuff and exhibits a, a lot of internal strength herself throughout the course of the film. And, and that's, I think that's what makes this film really sing for me. And, and I, I get that feeling about being out of balance, which uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in films like, uh, for example, Gangs in New York is a pretty clear example. Um, you know, perhaps lost, lost the Mohicans to a certain degree. Um, uh, although, the, of course, the, the visuals and the score and, 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 uh, you know, the Michael Mann working at the top of his game certainly do a lot to overcome any of that sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, maybe maybe even to some degree in my left foot, although Brenda Fricker is so great in that, that, uh, you know, I guess she sort of maintains the balance in, in that film. But uh, but here you've got, yeah, you've got this triangle of the of the three, the sister, the the model, muse, wife, and, and, and of course, the, the artist slash creator. And uh, and it it really never weakens over the course of the film in my mind anyway. And uh, you know I'll be curious to see how it does at Oscar time. Not that I really care about Oscars all that much, but I feel like I mean, you know, for example, for like how could it not get it for costume design? Yeah, for example, yeah, for sure. I feel like that maybe in that realm it'll it'll do fairly well. Yeah. But but we'll see. Yeah, Johnny Greenwood's score as well is a big part of what makes the film really work. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I'll have to go back and see it because I saw it uh, at Park Lane. I, you, you probably, I probably told you before that, that it seemed like the speakers on the left side of the screen were not working. Because yeah, you all, mentioned that. All the music was coming from the right side of the screen and it drove me bonkers. Yeah, so that's really irritating. It just felt off balance the whole time through the film. I mean, I still enjoyed the movie, but uh, yeah, that was... <laughs> And mm. and who knows what the you know the issue could have been in the print? It could have been anywhere along the chain. But. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to know, but that is a drag when that happens. Um, but <laughs> and, uh, but nobody else seemed to know. Like I kept getting up and going over to the other side of the theater. It's like, is there anything happening over here, audio wise? <laughs> and um, you know, that, nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're you know we are we do go see more movies than your average person, so we probably noticed some things. That's that's true. Given our our. Our obsessive wow. interest in these things. My my favorite uh, my favorite incident is still the time that the center channel was out during Night of Cups. Oh right, and but <laughs> no, it, it's but, hard to tell. Who, who could who could tell? <laughs> and then one, I think it sort of cut in partway through the film, and also there's a dialogue there's dialogue happening. Like, oh, cheapers. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> who knew? Um, there is a great sort of Hitchcockian twist to Phantom yes. Thread, which is. Uh, and I don't want to say any more than that because I don't want to give it away. But uh, there is an element of it that does, yeah, make me think of Hitchcock in a, in a most delightful way. And it's also this is this is really a romance in in in, um, in a way that will surprise you in a way that uh, that uh, that that if you haven't seen it. Uh, is not is unlike a lot of romances, and I, I remember walking out of the film with my uh, my cinepanion, if you will, and uh, and we were both feeling a little unnerved, which is not unusual for for a Paul Thomas Anderson film. His films are often unnerving, yes. But uh, but in this case, we're just trying to get our head around this this relationship and how it actually works. Uh, and yeah, I really uh, I really like that. I also wanted to say that I really liked, and I read about this after the fact, that Anderson actually shot in a house uh, 
in like this house where much of the action of the film takes place wasn't a set. This was actually a house that they shot in. And so it has that sort of sense of realism that I think the film really benefits from this feeling of like close quarters and, uh, you know, the particular sort of furnishings and the, the sets and everything about it has, has a, a real quality of realism, which um, I think really benefits the film. Oh, I, you know, I, I love the house in this movie, the, the, the setting and, and it did really, it did felt like a real place. I mean, you could, it wasn't so much the set design and, and production design that, that they were using kind of a lived in space. It was amazing that this house in probably one of the poshest neighborhoods in, in London still felt kind of cramped and, you know, it wasn't like a McMansion where there's just really high ceilings and, <laughs> and everything like the, the, you know, the, the room where they have their breakfast. You know, a lot of scenes at breakfast in this film, which I, I love, because maybe that's the only time of the day that she ever sees them, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I think probably the best rooms in the house are for showing off dresses and that kind of thing, because basically he runs his dress shop out of his home, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So their living quarters are kind of, you know, a, a small chunk of, of the actual house. And, uh, you know, that he's sort of another example of how he's given his life over to his his craft in a way, that he's he's not as concerned about the trappings of, of wealth and, and fame and, and so on, that, that it really is the, the creation that, that matters most. And anything that gets in the way of that is, uh, is an obstacle that has to be squashed, <laughs> you know, even if it means that his day is ruined by someone buttering their toast too loud. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the kind of obsession I can, I can get behind. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's been a long time since I've seen A Room with a View, which I feel like is probably the first time that audiences in, in large numbers sat up and took notice of Daniel Day-Lewis. My Beautiful Laundrette, I think, was, was a hit uh, on the kind of the art house circuit, but um, maybe because of uh, the uh, production values and, and the romantic nature of uh, A Room with a View, I think, it, and, and the cast, uh, I feel like it got a wider release and a lot more attention than My Beautiful Laundrette might have at the time. And uh, my memory of it is fairly faulty. I, I forgot that he plays, the Daniel Day-Lewis kind of plays the stiff, kind of crusty fiancé and not the romantic uh, interest for, um, for Helena Bonham Carter's character. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's funny how the, the time colors your memory of films that you've seen. The Julian Sands is, in fact, the, the sort of more attractive and romantic option um, you know, and it almost seems like it's it's odd casting in a way. You think that it would have been the reverse that this much, you know, in, in some ways the, the very kind of handsome and and um, delicate looking uh, Day Lewis would have been the obvious choice for that role. But maybe maybe it was he wanted to play the what would be the harder and, and less sympathetic role in this film, and and that's kind of a testament to to what he wanted to do early on to not be forced into these kind of stereotypical romantic. Leads, which uh, which are not the sort of thing he did with any great regularity over the course of his career. Yeah, he was more interested true. in character. But um, but what a cast it is, and it definitely uh, is something I, I would like to return to. When you look at besides, I mean, Maggie Smith and Helena Bottom Carter obviously is uh, the chaperone and her charge. Uh, Lady Honey, Lucy Honeychurch, played by Bottom Carter. But then but then you've got like Denham Elliott and Simon Callow as the Reverend, and Judy Dench turns up as well yes. as as a, as a writer and and. Um, <laughs> It's uh, it, it's the kind of I mean you can't even imagine assembling a cast like that now for some reason it just doesn't seem like like those kind of faces and, and that kind of talent is really out there in, in that degree. 
No, it's true. It is an amazing cast. I, I, it was a big hit at the time, I remember. Uh, and uh, Judy Dench brings a lot of humor. I mean, it starts in Florence, and you get all these sort of Brits, Brits expatriate Brits in Florence, and everyone is so concerned with etiquette, and, and everyone's so repressed, and it's and there's a lot of humor to be mined from that. Uh, but yes, uh, Helen Bob Carter is the sort of lead, and she we go back to the UK, and then she's after having a very close call, a very dramatic close call with uh, Mr. Emerson, the Julian Sands character, she goes back to the UK, and then we find she's engaged to Day-Lewis's Mr. Vise, and he's such a miserable prig. He's, uh, you know, and, and the film kind of pivots on this feeling that this other young man would be much, much better suited, a much better match to... Uh, Ms. Honeychurch, if only that could happen. Of course, Mr. Emerson does appear in the UK, and uh, things get a little complicated. Uh, it is, it's a its a really romantic film. It's a gorgeous to look at. They shot in all the most gorgeous part of Tuscany in Italy, and then, you know, in the summertime in in the countryside in, in England, and... Uh, yeah, and everyone looks very, very good in their <clears throat> costumes, and... Uh, it's a it's a charmer. It's actually not my favorite Merchant Ivory, but it is in some ways their peak uh, in terms of their recognition because everyone it seems to me that everyone went to see this movie once upon a time, um, and uh, yeah, and then Day Lewis really was off to the races. He was in a bunch of other films that came out in the late '80s that are very hard to find. Uh, and the titles, I'm just going to r- rattle off a couple of them here. Nanu, Stars and Bars, and a picture called Ever Smiled New Jersey. Now, these are very, like, indie indie movies that I think maybe a handful of people saw, and they are still, they are tough to, to track down. But uh, he was making some interesting choices right off the top. Now, he was in another hit, uh, an art house hit at least, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. This is Philip Kaufman's film, shot by Sven Nyquist and edited, uh, well, supervising editor Walter Murch. This is like a big deal in the art house uh, world. And uh, my memory of that was that uh, as a teenager, it was some kind of erotic classic, but I had a look at it. <laughs> yeah, it, I don't think this film has stood up at all. I, I don't think so either. It's almost three hours long. I do remember a friend of mine called it the um, unbearable soreness of bum by virtue of how <laughs> long it was. But uh, it has an interesting little sort of, it's a it's a love triangle where where uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays this Czech doctor, Tomáš, opposite Lena Olin's mirror-obsessed Sabina and Juliette Binoche's ingenue. And, uh, yeah, um, Daniel Day-Lewis plays a very much like the womanizing sort of cad, the wolfish, yeah. good-looking guy. It's not a character he plays very often. And uh, it's the kind of thing where where, you know, it's set in the 60s in the backdrop of all this political upheaval in Eastern Europe, and they have to flee from the Soviet invasion and go to, to Switzerland, and then they go back, and it's, there is actually, it does become sort of a political drama, but for the most part, it's not very plot-driven. It's just, you know, watching these three beautiful characters in various stages of undress uh, dealing with each other. Uh, you know, and if you're into that, I, everyone is beautiful. There's no doubt about it, but what struck me was that Daniel Day-Lewis set in the 60s, he he really looks like it's the mid-80s. Like, he has this huge hair <laughs> and wears Wayfarer's glasses at one point, sunglasses at one point. I'm like, really? Like, really? This is this is what it is. Like, the, the sexy guy in the 80s had to have Wayfarers and had to, like, stalk around, you know? Yeah, it's very much a film of its time, and, and I, I mean, I, was, I wasn't that old when I saw it, so, you know, relationships weren't, weren't something that I was uh, well attuned to at that point in my life. And, and I, I just didn't uh, really care about any of the characters or 
you know, they're, they're just attractive and annoying. Um, <laughs> and, and from what I gather, uh, I haven't read the book by uh, Milan Kundera, which is a very popular book. Um, the, the doctor that Daniel Day-Lewis plays, I believe, is supposed to be much older. Like, oh, I, I know okay. some people who liked the book felt he was miscast right. in that. And, uh, you know, not something you often hear about him. No, but uh, But the film was a big hit anyway and, and certainly didn't hurt his career any. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, anytime a book uh, of any stripe gets adapted, there's going to be going to be issues with uh, with something around it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but in this case, I'm guessing that people had a fairly fairly legit gripe about the yeah. way the way his character came across on screen. And 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 you're right that that kind of weird um, anachronistic uh, portrayal of the time. Uh, but uh, you know, which is weird considering you know Philip Kaufman did such a great job with the right stuff. Uh, yeah, that they would kind of miss the mark with uh, this one. Is, he, he was kind of astonishing. carrying the flag for sort of Euro uh, sexiness, you know. Uh, uh, Henry and June was also his film, and uh, he had a certain, yeah, a certain something uh, that uh, that you know there was there's <laughs> he 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 had a tone that that uh, continued through these films that uh, that seemed to be the, he seemed to be the only one really doing it this way at the time. But uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Mr. Day-Lewis, of course, uh, went on to win an Academy Award for his 1989 film, My Left Foot, which I think most people know about. Uh, incredible performance as he plays a, a character named Christy Brown, Irish painter with cerebral palsy, uh, based on a true story. Uh, now, here's a little anecdote about when Day-Lewis won the Oscar and he went up on stage, and he he's actually, uh, I went back and watched the footage. You can go back and watch footage of people receiving Oscars, <laughs> yes. and I don't do that, but I did for this case, and he went up, and I remember he had said something pretty funny when he got the award, and he I guess he was shooting uh, Last Mohicans. He had really long black hair at the time, and uh, he said, uh, you've just provided me with a hell of a week at weekend in Dublin. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, when he, when he won his second Academy Award for There Will Be Blood, he was given the award by Helen Mirren, who had previously won for the Queen the year before, and he kneeled on the stage and she anointed him <laughs> with the statuette. And he said, that's the closest I'll ever come to getting a knighthood, which turns out to be untrue. Uh, and then he won one more Oscar, the third. I think he is the only actor uh, to win uh, three Oscars for leading uh, male lead actor. Uh, and uh, I think that's right. Anyway, he won for Lincoln. And another opportunity to make a joke, he got the award for Meryl Streep. And when uh, he got up there, he said um, that they had actually swapped roles from the previous year, that he, originally uh, Steven Spielberg's first choice for Lincoln was Streep, and that uh, he was supposed to pay Maggie Thatcher in Iron Lady, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is actually, those are actually pretty good jokes. I don't know if he came up with them on the spot or whether he planned that, but that those those are, are great uh, things to say at the Academy Awards. I, I'll, I'll credit to him for that. I get the feeling that when he's not on a film set and he's not embroiled in a character, he he knows how to have a pretty good life, and he doesn't, you know, like like he doesn't pursue work for the sake of work. Obviously, no. you know, making films every five years or whatever it is, but but uh, you know, whenever the right role comes his way or he gets to work with the right uh, director, um, you know, everything kind of seems to click. Yeah. Uh, you know, or he goes off and becomes a shoemaker in <laughs> Italy. For, yeah. I and uh, from, I guess I read somewhere that that. You know, he wasn't even considering acting, really, that, that he actually wanted to be a furniture maker <laughs> early okay. on. Like, so he clearly likes to do stuff with his hands. He likes, yes. Which may, and maybe that's why Reynolds Woodcock is such an interesting role for him, because uh, it kind of lines up with, you know, his, his 
feelings about being someone who makes things and then makes things of value and permanence. And, uh, and, uh, that's, that's an aspect to that role that I don't think you get really so much in some of the other films that he's done. That's true. He's a very physical actor. And I, I really appreciate that. And I, you know, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about the method generally, but I, I really respect that he is so committed. And I think that's what comes through in his roles. Uh, you know, there's something else I wanted to mention just as another aside, uh, and we don't talk, we don't often do sort of profiles of actors and go through their work. We've done it with yeah. John Hurt. And we did it with Meryl Streep. Yeah, and- yeah, we've done it a couple of times. But, uh, and we definitely aren't interested in the actors' personal lives. Uh, we are interested in the work. But I did make a little note that I found interesting that Day-Lewis in the 1990s was involved with the extraordinarily talented and beautiful Isabella Johnny who always who seems like, speaking of sort of the method, she's like the female version of Daniel Day-Lewis. It seems a certain kind of sense the two of them would connect. And they have a son together, uh, and now he's a male model. I guess he really won the genetic lottery yeah, there. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, since then, he's remarried uh, to Rebecca Miller, who is uh, a director and actor and writer, and she's the daughter of Arthur Miller. I guess they met on The Crucible. Uh, and they have two kids together. So anyway, I just found that to be kind of kind of interesting. He, of course, starred in her film, uh, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, which was shot in Prince Edward Island, which I maybe will say a few things about. But uh, where are we on our list now? Of uh, I've, I've taken us down some rabbit yeah, holes Yeah, well, we, we, we talked about, uh, we kind of touched on My Left Foot a little bit. I, I, I know that uh, I saw that film shortly before going to Dublin for the first and only time, and I, I, I had to go up that hill that they climb at the end of the movie. I had to go up there and... Uh, I think over Brayhead, um, and visit some other spots from the film, or at least you know notice locations and things from from that. That, that movie was uh, had a big impact on me at the time, just because it was such an amazing performance. And I, 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 I think I mean I'm looking. I've got you know behind the curtain. I've got IMDb up here, but I think like My Left Foot is sort of the first fully transformative role that he did, where he just uh, became. A completely different person in terms of physicality and voice and and uh, uh, I mean he'd been fine playing character roles and and so on up to that point but uh, but that was the first role I think where we saw that there was a way more depth to what he could do than what we'd seen up to that point um, and uh, you know beyond being kind of handsome and and attractive and quirky um, you know this is where he became something completely other than what he is. And, uh, and that kind of, that opened the gates for a whole lot of, uh, different opportunities for him. And, um, also the, his first uh, collaboration with Jim Sheridan, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about, yeah. um, where, which, which led to in the name of the father and the boxer. So that's kind of a pretty good uh, triptych. And, and, uh, I'm kind of amazed to discover that my left foot is also Jim Sheridan's first movie, uh, which is a pretty astonishing achievement because it's a very assured piece of, of filming. I guess he was involved in theater and, and uh, some other corners of, of the arts world. Uh, but for a first film, that's that's really hitting it out of the park, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really something. It's been a while since I've seen that one. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, an amazing performance. And, uh, and I, I, what I remember of it is that there isn't a fraction of sentiment in it. I no. mean, it's it's so. In some ways, it's actually kind of a brutal perform uh, uh, portrayal of a character who who dares you to like him, and uh, you know doesn't want pity. Uh, he doesn't want any of that. Uh, he just, but he is he feels so much, and you really get it from from Day Lewis's performance. It's amazing. 
And uh, m- maybe because we've touched on Sheridan, we've, we've got some uh, time in this segment to talk about the, the other two collaborations. In the Name of the Father, of course, was a very powerful film at the time it came out. Um, you know, things were kind of winding down in terms of, the, I mean, when I was in Ireland in the early 90s, uh, the, the, the troubles um, were just, they were just kind of beginning negotiations for, for the ceasefire, and, and, uh, which, of course, comes into play in, in The Boxer, the third film uh, in there trilogy as it were um but uh, in, in the name of the father of course is st- just plunks you right down smack dab in the middle of it um when uh, daniel day lewis is you know everyday uh belfast thug basically <laughs> you know kind of a wastrel who's like stealing lead off of people's roofs to sell to the scrapyard uh gets implicated in in an ira bombing plot and uh the, the British police to cover their tracks, just fabricate evidence, and they figure, well, we got somebody, and that's the main thing. You know, as long as he looks like we're doing our job and finding the perpetrators, then all is good. When, of course, he had nothing to do with it. It just so happens that he and his his buddy happened to pull off uh, the robbery of a, of a prostitute, or so, well, a call girl, um, you know, a fairly posh uh, apartment of a, of a call girl, um, and uh, they, they come into some dough, and, and then that paints them as uh, IRA collaborators because uh, presumably there's a lot of money to be made in the IRA in the eyes of the British police, apparently. And, uh, and of course, they, they, they rope in most of his family as well as being collaborators when, they, of course, none of them had anything to do with any of it. So it's, you know, it's the injustice of it all. It's, it's his transformation from a street criminal into an activist uh, over the course of his stay uh, and his relationship with his father, uh, which it you know, in some people's minds that could be the worst hell imaginable. Like you know, given the relationship they, that they have, this kind of at odds relationship, he sees his father as being a weak man, as being a coward, as being a capitulator, and then they get stuck in a cell together for fifteen years. <laughs> you know, just it, it's almost uh, it's almost like something out of Jean Paul Sartre, really, <laughs> to be trapped in the in a cell with your your father for. Uh, for the foreseeable future, and uh, but but of course that relationship uh, under that kind of pressure certainly evolves over the course of the film. And Pete Postlethwaite is fantastic uh, uh, as as kind of his foil, I guess, as as to bounce off of as the man who doesn't give up and has faith and you know believes that people are essentially good somewhere along the line. And uh, and then of course Emma Thompson kind of comes in as their crusader, uh, the lawyer who really gets the ball rolling to get them out of there. So there's a lot going on in this film, and uh, Sheridan manages to keep the balls all up in the air fairly well, I thought. Yeah, I did too. And it, the role is very, uh, you know, I, I was feeling like a lot of Daniel Day-Lewis's roles are very internal. There's a lot going on under the sort of behind his eyes, and they're very intellectual. And uh, and this is one where I just felt like he just went with his gut. And the performance, uh, Jerry Conlon, he's, he, he's really... Like it's just all over the place. It's really wide and and sort of splashy, <laughs> yeah. if I may say so. And I really it makes him. Uh, you know, you can see that he's he's not a bad guy. He's made some bad decisions, uh, and and some of that is due to the relationship with his father, which he's never really been able to articulate to his father. This feeling of pressure, which of course their circumstances gives him the opportunity to actually explain to his father what why he's so upset with him but they do come to some understanding and then there's this sort of sweeping sense of injustice that carries through to become sort of a prison movie and then those final i don't know final 10 minutes of the film is just like 
all emotion, the way it's edited. It's just amazing. And then the incredible uh, uh, Sinead O'Connor song, uh, oh, yeah. you know, You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart, which is a, an incredible song and uh, written by Bono and uh, Gavin Friday, I gather. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow, yeah, that the whole ending is just, it's the whole tone of the film changes in such a way that's really it's really something and it was great to revisit it it was better than i remembered it yeah it holds up really well i mean uh, you know the even though that period is kind of behind us it it doesn't hurt to remind us uh, you know like films like that and hidden agenda that uh you know just the subterfuge that was happening in northern ireland and what the british government and the establishment was up to to kind of either preserve status quo or kind of keep the mud stirred up was, it was kind of astounding. And that carries through to the boxer. Um, but it's, it's a much different film than in the name of the father. I, I, we watched it together and, uh, I'm glad I saw it. I I basically, I had not seen the film at all. And we watched it recently on, on DVD. And, uh, it's a much quieter, uh, like you say, internalized performance, uh, of a guy who just kind of wants to keep his head down and, and, uh, you know, get back in the ring and doesn't want, you know, was involved with the IRA, but doesn't want anything to do with him now, you know, because that's what put him in jail in the first place. Uh, and and yet it's like that kind of like that Al Pacino. They keep bringing me back in, you know, yeah. he, like he like he can't like he should have just left Ireland basically, but he can't leave it behind. And of course, his his former flame, played by Emily Watson, is there as this kind of temptation. But she, you know, when I guess when he arre- he got arrested, she married another guy who also wound up in jail, and they had this weird obsession with protecting the prisoners' wives. They're basically like keeping them separate from any temptation yeah. <laughs> to, to, you know, basically in the interest of serving their men on the inside, not for any benefit of the wives themselves. So uh, that that's a very odd phenomenon, which I, I kind of wondered, like, how true is that, that they would go to such great lengths to prevent the, the wives of prisoners from getting up to any hanky-panky? But, it, you know, when I think of the the, the, the Catholic nature of, of, of the IRA and then the struggle that I guess that's the sort of thing they would take very seriously. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's a pretty film, fascinating in that regard, but it, it definitely uh, requires a lot of background and understanding and it takes its time getting to that. But you know, it's not when you think of the boxer, you think, well, it's not a boxing movie. It's not a sports movie, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the boxing for his character, I think sort of symbolizes this chance to make a difference in the community because the boxing matches are non-sectarian. So everyone, is welcome and there is some effort to try to make to bring Catholics and Protestants together so at the sporting event which is kind of cool and I and I, I appreciated that but the heart of the film is really the relationship between Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, character uh, Danny Boy Flynn and Emma Watson's character Maggie and how they they have this thing with each other that they can't really do anything about. And uh, yeah, it's the romantic heart I really felt worked in the film. I, I didn't think it's near it's nearly as effective or as much fun as in the name of the father, but it's it's um, you know, it's much more low key. Yeah, maybe, maybe because the whole boxing thing is more allegorical. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a little hard to, to connect with that. But but even when I was there briefly in Belfast, you know, I I, I was learning about the efforts to kind of make the city more inclusive and to break down the barriers between Protestant and Catholics. And then the resistance from within those own communities to kind of keep the walls up, even though they've been fighting so hard to have them torn down. It's, it's, it's such a, it's such a odd topsy turvy kind of situation. And, and the boxer, I think encapsulates that to, to a, to a great degree. Uh, and I think it hits more often than it misses. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying not to use boxing metaphors here, but I, <laughs> it's, my brain goes there. But, yeah, but I, I find yourself. it works for the most part. But it, but it's yeah, it's and there is some real tension in there. Anytime you see the the boys from the from the 
the IRA sort of lurking around the edges trying to figure out what he's up to and and uh, you know is he for them or against them and he you know he just doesn't want to be a part of it at all and and in fact tries to diffuse his attempts to diffuse things just make things kind of worse um, and uh, you know I'm sure that mirrors the efforts of quite a few people like like Al, like Albert Finney's uh, uh, or sorry um, Ken Stott who plays the his former trainer right, who's, sure. who's really you know interested in that kind of Catholics and Protestants getting together kind of thing um, which which some people are adamantly against and uh, it, you know it, it's it's hard to imagine on in, on this side of the Atlantic what that struggle was like but but this this film tries to put it in into an interesting perspective that might be kind of hard to, to believe for for people who who haven't experienced it firsthand but it but it, it felt fairly real to me even though it was kind of abstract in a way. So in 1992, Daniel Day-Lewis was in two films, Last Mohicans and Age of Innocence. And again, they couldn't be more different, those performances. Uh, in Last Mohicans, which is probably, is certainly my favorite film of his, uh, but it's I'm a big Michael Mann fan, so uh, I've seen it many times over the years since it came out, is uh, the, um, it's a romantic epic, which is, shot and edited and uh, moves like an action thriller. And in it, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Hawkeye, the, uh, the adoptive son of uh, a family of uh, Native uh, Americans. And, uh, and he, you know, and we're, we're on the frontier. Uh, it's the uh, 1700s, and the French and the English are fighting each other. And, and these, these group of, uh, of, of basically travelers are moving through this 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 world and uh Daniel Day-Lewis's character falls in love with Madeline Stowe's uh she's a daughter of a of a British I should say I guess he's a Scottish uh general in the field and uh it's a there's a lot of drama there's a it's it it moves like the whole the whole film uh, is is amazing the the um, the the scale of it as a war picture, but also as a romance, as a costume drama to some degree. But uh, it there there is action sequences like the the shot about the beginning of I guess the third act. There is an action sequence that takes place in a forest glade that has some of the most impressive hand to hand combat sequences mm. I've ever seen. It, still to date, I just like my breath is taken away by those sequences. And uh, Day Lewis is completely convinced as a man who's basically spent his whole life living, you know, uh, out in the, in the wilderness and, and uh, uh, hunting and trapping and, uh, and, you know, living by a code of honor. Uh, he, and and uh, Madeline Stowe is great opposite him. I find that she really, she really, her arc is almost the, the biggest arc of the film in terms of her character development, and she really brings it. Um, but it is a really beautiful film with incredible score as well, like... Uh, Trevor Jones, uh, it's it's really something. Yeah, I always wonder what happened to Madeline Stowe's career. Uh, you know, a few strong early roles, and then uh, just kind of peters out. And she she done she's done some television, but uh, you're right, I haven't seen her in in a lot uh, in feature films uh, since then. But uh, yeah, she's she's great. Um, and I wanted to say the second film from '92 was Age of Innocence, yes. which is Martin Scorsese adaptation of the Edith Wharton novel, set in New York in the 1870s, where the high society is entirely obsessed with etiquette and propriety. 
at one point, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Countess Olenska asks, is fashion such a serious consideration? To which Daniel Day-Lewis's lawyer, Newland Archer, replies, among people who have nothing more to consider. Uh, and that's really <laughs> what it is. It's like this, uh, it's incredibly well-appointed film from sets and props to food. Um, and uh, it's very staged, but not in a bad way. And I've always liked Winona Ryder. She's in it. Uh, but though I, I do prefer her when she's not playing period dramas, uh, I just find that she's more real in T-shirts and jeans. But, you know, what do I know? This role nabbed her an Oscar nomination. So, <laughs> And it's on Roger Ebert's great movies list. Uh, again, it's really about Day-Lewis, who is married to uh, Winona Ryder's character, or engaged, I should say, but then has this connection with Pfeiffer and, and can't quite let that go. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about that possible scandal. And, uh, yeah, and it's... Um, it's the film basically documents Newland's torturous affection for this other woman while he's married and, and what what he's willing to do in order to try to connect with this other other woman. And it's it's uh, it's it's very different film for Scorsese, but very much worth seeing. Yeah, this is a film I haven't seen probably since it came out. And I remember being more enchanted with the trappings of it than maybe the, the heart of the story of this film, like the look of the film and the the portrayal of, of high society in New York City, although a lot of it was actually shot in Troy, New York, upstate, because there was a couple of blocks that maintained the old, um, I guess, the ironwork facades from that period, which I guess there were none of those left in New York. Those buildings had all either come down or been, you know, refaced or what have you. But there, but there was, I guess, a couple of blocks, because Troy is a fairly industrial city, but I guess there was a, one district where uh, it had that feel of well-to-do... Uh, turn of the century, New York City. And uh, I remember driving around <laughs> Troy. I was on, on my way to a film fest in Syracuse, but I had to like try and find the block where they filmed. But of course, I, I don't think I found it. I mean, who knows where it is in that in that town. But um, but it, the, the, it did have that kind of old industrial city kind of feel about it, uh, old company town. Um, and, uh, but, but, but it, you know, not much of that film has sort of resonated with me over the years. I feel like maybe I should revisit it uh, at some point, but it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's not high on my list. It's, it's, it's got a lot of the trappings of the period drama, and I feel like a lot of effort's gone in to try to make it as authentic as possible. All this, you know, this about the lives of these people in, uh, in this period. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I was glad to see it again, mostly the, for the performances, and, uh, but I, I don't know that I, I loved it. I don't know if I came away feeling particularly moved by it, but, uh, but of course, Daniel Day-Lewis would work with uh, Martin Scorsese again in *The Gangs of New York*, which is a film that it lives in my memory even with less of a, uh, a, a sort of uh, a positive feeling than uh, *Age of Innocence*. But you went and rewatched *Gangs of New York*. <laughs> I did rewatch it recently, and uh, it, it's one of those films that um, the parts of it I didn't like at the time only seem worse, and the parts that I did like seem better. Okay. So it's, it's that's interesting. It feels it. So I don't know. I guess maybe it feels even more out of balance than it did when I first saw it. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis kind of mows down everybody in his path in this movie, like literally and figuratively. His performance is so big, and I, and, you know, I I don't like to be because I I don't like to be the kind of sort of movie reviewer who like goes to a film and points out, well, if you'd done this, this, and this, it would have been a better film because it's like, yeah. well, yeah, but you can't. So yeah, what's, uh, you, what's the kinda, point in that? Yeah, kind of yeah. deal deal with the film as it as you know you kind of have to take it as it is you can't improve it you know maybe a director's cut will might do that at some point but that's not really your call um 
but you know, just if somebody if it just said if somebody other than Leonardo DiCaprio had been cast in that role, somebody his his you know his performance is so not of the time where everybody else is playing a character from late 1800s, you know, Civil War era New York City, um, and yet you know. DiCaprio never, it always feels like he just walked off the set from, from, you know, Main Street and, and just put on, put a braid in his hair and put some dirt on his face and just kind of starts interacting with these characters from out of the past. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I have a huge anti-Leonardo uh, bias. He's not my favorite actor by any stretch, but he, you know, he's right for certain roles, but he, he definitely was not right for this one, I'm afraid. And uh, but I, you know, I guess I guess it was a matter of being bankable, and yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I think he's great in things like The Wolf of Wall Street sure. or uh, Django Unchained. I think he's done some really good work. But you're right. I uh, that's one of the things I remember thinking to myself. Really, really, like, what is it about uh, Scorsese that ch- makes him ch- choose DiCaprio so regularly? Because they really do have a, a a working relationship. The kind of, in some ways, as as long standing and as uh, uh, as connective as his previous one with Robert De Niro. And I'm trying to remember. I don't know off the top of my head. But has he made more films with DiCaprio than with De Niro? At I this can't point? remember at this point either. Uh, but he's made at it's, least it's three or four, I think. Yeah. Well, the Shutter Island and the Aviator. And, yeah. Um, yeah. That's three right there. Uh, that Boston Cop movie. His name escapes me at the moment. Um, not the Betray. Oh, why can't I remember the name of that film? The one based on Infernal Affairs. Oh yes, that's right. Right. Uh, yeah. Jack blank- Nicholson. I remember everything about the film, but it's title. <laughs> blanking. That's myself. how memorable it was. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, and I know a lot of people are crapping on Cameron Diaz's casting in this film, and even recently, because of course this was produced by uh, by Miramax and Harvey Weinstein, and and there's, there was a lot of behind the scenes uh, machinations going on there that hurt the film uh, in terms of his influence on the film and its editing and and the final cut and all that kind of stuff and the casting. Um, but obviously, DiCaprio would have been Scorsese's choice because he's continued to work with him. And I don't think Cameron Diaz is as bad as, as some people have made her out to be in this film. But um, perhaps not the perfect uh, person for that role either. But, uh, but ah, The Departed. The Departed. The Departed. There we go. <laughs> that was close. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, but then you've got people, you've got uh, Jim Broadbent and, as, as Boss Tweed and, and uh, Brendan Gleeson as kind of a silent Avenger. Uh, Liam Neeson shows up early in the film as, as, um, as DiCaprio's character's dad. Uh, before he's mowed down by Bill the Butcher, giving us our sort of uh, revenge uh, plot thread throughout the film. But uh, but Day Lewis, uh, his character is. I mean, I mean, obviously people compared him to Snidely Whiplash because of the the mustache and the stove stovepipe hat. But good gosh, that's a great entrance when at the when he kind of comes out onto the five points at the start of the film. He comes out from this building and just. You know, they they show his feet, and then it's it's kind of like a very classic kind of old school reveal yeah. when he comes out, and he just makes an impact right away, and uh, you just keep waiting for the next scene that he's in, and and uh, you know he never fails to disappoint throughout the film. I mean, it's obviously it's a long film, and maybe gets a bit ungainly, especially in its third act, but um, but certainly he he makes it worth returning yeah. to. And I can feel that 
passion that Scorsese has for the history of New York. I mean, that's what what really drives a lot of uh, Age of Innocence. And now he's yes. looking at a different era, or a different part of New York with this film, with the gangs of New York. And but yeah, and I think about Daniel Day Lewis's performance in it, uh, and I think about like the scene where he's wrapped in the American flag, and and uh, in he's having the chat <laughs> yes. with uh, with DiCaprio, and I'm like, did DiCaprio have anything to say? Did he? Did, was there anything else? Like I almost, it's almost like he's giving a monologue because. That's all I remember about that that scene. I just like, you know, Day Lewis is just magnetic in a way that uh, that again it, it feels a little bit like he is steamrolling other performers around him. Uh, but yeah, yeah, and then uh, and that's kind of how I felt in in There Will Be Blood in some parts of the film, uh, which hard to believe that film came out uh, you know more than ten years ago. But uh, but yeah, that's that's but in that case. Uh, Day Lewis isn't a supporting actor; he is the lead. So we he, we're sort of allowed. He's in every scene. He's yeah. in every scene. So we're sort of allowed to to pay attention to him in a way exclusively, in a way that that is. I mean, that it, it means that he has to carry the whole film, and he is, and it's a huge demand on him. But he is so compelling in this loathsome character. Uh, but thinking back on the film, like, uh, uh, Paul Dano is in it in a dual role. And I'll be damned if I can remember much about what his character brought to it other than just to operate as some kind of foil to be, uh, you know, humiliated by a Daniel Plainview plain view in the film. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I rewatched it this morning and, uh, I think, I think the second time I'd rewatched it since I saw it in the theater when I, and I first time I saw it was like without real, I think it was in an early screen, like an advanced screening without any advanced sort of impression of the film at all. And, uh, you know, this morning I put it on, I said, I remember like the first 15, 17 minutes or so, there's no dialogue at all. Just the image of him kind of digging in the dirt and slowly building up his, his business. Uh, uh, it's 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 almost it's it's not quite a montage because it's stretched over such a long period of time, but it is this very succinct portrayal of of how he went from one guy out in the desert looking for for oil to this guy with a crew and a Derek and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then of course I remember the bowling alley scene with Paul Dano at the end. <laughs> you know, the unforgettable scene that once you watched it, you cannot unwatch. Um, it was some of the most memorable dialogue of that year as well, which uh, I, I don't have to repeat here, but um, I couldn't remember what happened in between those, those astonishing opening and closing scenes. And, uh, and then as I watched it, it unfolded and it was coming back to me. And, uh, and also, it, it, the movie's like two hours and 40 minutes, did not feel like that at all. And it's not because there's like lots of action. It's, it's just the, the strength of that performance and, and the way he just chews every word uh, in that very John Houstonian uh, manner. And that, that was the other thing that I remember seeing in the theater for the first time. It was driving me nuts. Like, what is that voice? And then at, at some point, the wheel, it's like, oh, it's John, he's doing John Houston. Right, um, right. But it, but it was, per, you know, it was perfect. And, you know, the, the vast majority of people who are seeing, unless they've seen Chinatown, I've probably never seen John Houston act. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was uh, it was a bold choice for sure and, and probably seemed obvious to some, but to many it was just this just a way to make that character kind of larger than life uh, in a way that only he can. And uh, and that's, you know, the film would be much weaker for it, I think, if, if he hadn't made that fairly bold decision to go there. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's why I, I'd love returning to this movie. Yeah, no, you're right. It is something special. And I think, 
even though he hasn't worked, he's really chosen his projects in the last 20 years. He hasn't worked all the time. Uh, Day-Lewis, we're going to miss him. I mean, if he really decides to hang up his uh, his tights, so to speak, uh, you know, every time he shows up in a film, it's an event, even if it's a film that uh, isn't terribly well-received, like Nine, um, you know, or one that uh, that barely anyone saw, like The Ballad of Jack and Rose, which I watched, uh, and I, I liked. It's a quirky little indie, but I think I was most interested because it was shot up the road in Prince yeah, Edward exactly. Island. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's... it's uh, he is... Uh, or, you know, of course, Lincoln was a huge deal, and he was nominated again for Academy Award and won for that one. Uh, Spielberg's uh, uh, biopic of uh, the last few months of uh, the president's life. Um, you know, he, it's, he is... He's he's managed to carve out a body of work that is unparalleled, and uh, and it's uh, yeah, and he, I think I think uh, I think we're gonna miss him. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if five years down the road, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson or a Scorsese reaches out to him for some project, and or or even a Spielberg, and 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 we see him again. You know, it's 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 you know, obviously these the, these are projects that take a year out of his life, if not more, and. Uh, I can understand why he'd be, you know, if he doesn't need to do the work, uh, then he doesn't do the work. But uh, I, I could see him returning at some point. But uh, I'd also be very impressed if he, you know, sticks to making furniture or shoes or whatever he decides to do in the next next part of his life. Many thanks for listening to this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, a film podcast where we watch new films and compare them to old ones. And uh, we took a slide through Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, oeuvre today, and it was a lot of fun. Really appreciate you uh, tuning in. You can find us if you'd like to reach out to us. We have a page on Facebook for Lends Me Your Ears, and we're on Twitter, at Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, I have a, a Twitter account myself, which is named after my blog, and it's at Flaw in the Iris. And Stephen, you've got one. Well, I've got one too. Yes, I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And if you enjoy what you've heard, you can always support us through our Patreon account. And as always, we'd like to thank the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put all the fine finishing touches on this show and CKDU-FM, which airs us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. and, of course, allows us the use of their fantastic production facilities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.